Today on episode 13 of the eWork podcast, Alex Lorenz on what he looks for when investing in early stage companies. Hello and welcome to this episode of the eWork podcast. My name is Leon Burma and this is the space where founders get to share their stories on how they got an idea and turned it into a profitable business. Today's guest is Alex Lorenz. Alex is an entrepreneur turned investor. In 2016, Alex founded Lorik Ventures, an early stage angel investor investing in impactful fintech and urban tech startups. The portfolio already consists of over 70 startups, including unicorns such as Revolut, Brex, and Maven. Since the beginning of 2022, Alex is a venture partner at Revis Capital a single LP structure investing in early-stage impactful urban tech startups. Alex, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Great, let's jump right into it. I know you're an investor in early-stage startups, mostly what we just talked about, fintech, urban tech. And by definition, early-stage startups usually don't really have this product market fit or a lot of traction yet. So how do you decide whether you want to invest in them? Like, What is the basis of your decision? Yeah, I guess that's a tricky question. I mean, it comes with, um, it, it depends on what stage you're obviously investing in. But um, uh, like me, uh, looking at a lot of pre-seed sort of um, startups, you're right, there's often no product market fit. Often it's just a founding team, maybe a first or second employee. So um, there's there's obviously no, no significant traction. It really comes down to um, the founding team and obviously the interaction you initially have with them and uh, judging, I guess, judging their skill set, their expertise, their personalities, uh, how they obviously how they match each other as well, which is very, very important. So they, ideally, they have obviously a complementary skill set. So I think initially it's very important as an, as an early stage investor to have that, that interaction with a founding team multiple times. So obviously, you have several calls, have that sort of email back and forth, ask a lot of questions. Um, I think that's very much key to then deciding if that's I mean that's the right team to tackle a specific problem. Obviously, come up with a solution and turn a very early startup into a success down the line. So team sounds really key in your decision. What are some red flags? Like what are things a founder can do or a founding team that you're like, no, I'm not investing anymore? For me, for, first of all, it's very important if I have that interaction. Obviously, obviously there needs to be a chemistry with a founder as well. I think get, you know, getting off the right foot is quite important initially. And then it, I think it really comes down, obviously, to the background of the founder matching to do what they want to tackle. Ideally, you know, if they tackle something in the impact space, they might have you know domain expertise, meaning they worked in this specific area before in that space. I mean, the, per, the dream scenario is always somebody coming from a I call place of pain. So they have this sort of really intrinsic motivation to a problem. They experience this problem themselves. They want to. They really want to solve it. I think um, that's an ideal scenario. But often you wouldn't have that. Often you would have a founder obviously setting up something new in a domain he's not familiar with, which is not necessarily a deal breaker, I must say. But then it really comes down to obviously what the founder has done before, how he matches some of his skill set with his co-founder. 
And for me, the interaction is very important in terms of a founder being responsive. I think that's very much key in terms of a founder being kind of very transparent in the process, in terms of communication with you in the, in the overall fundraising process. Um, I think that's very important as well, keeping all cards sort of open. I think it's very important, obviously, what I try to do as the, as the founder, usually via email, then sort of a lot of questions. And just see how they tackle the questions. Obviously, you can't answer all questions. There's no, it's initially, it's going to be hard for, for any founder to know the answer to everything. And that's not what you're after. But obviously, you're after somebody who you feel thinks around these questions and potentially, you know, obviously, find solutions to these potentially, you know, these, these sort of bottlenecks. And I think in some answers, you can, you know, you read between the lines and get a feel for how they're tackling a problem. And I think that gives you a good indication how they actually will manage problems down the line within an organization, within early stage startups, because it's always going to be obviously a difficult journey with a lot of barriers to overcome. So I think these are all important aspects. So it really, and every team is different. So it's hard to say, you know, sometimes you have a single founder and he's still looking for a co-founder. Often you have two, sometimes you have three. And then it depends on their skill sets as well and what kind of problem they're tackling. Is it more technical? Is it not? So there's obviously a lot of kind of... Um, variables that fall into the equation of judging um, a good founding team. It does sound like a lot of variables and also a lot of ways for you to get that information. It's not, it, we talked about emails, we talked about phone calls, answering questions. I think a lot of times when founders think about fundraising, the pitch is the first thing that comes to their mind. How do you weigh their like, I don't know, 20 minute pitch in relationship to all the other things that you just mentioned, like the communication beforehand, afterwards, etc.? Good question. Was usually I get the obviously I get a I get an intro from another VC or from another founder or I've, you know there's going to be a cold outreach or via LinkedIn. There's different ways and obviously usually I always ask for a pitch deck first. So I look at the pitch deck and obviously make myself a picture of the founding team's background. Obviously then researching them a bit and the problem they're tackling. And sometimes okay if it's it's a problem I'm sort of a bit uh, an industry I'm familiar with. It helps me obviously. Um, getting an idea if this is something they obviously can take off. And if something I'm interested in and I do have a certain belief in, and I think that the founder is sort of, a, a sort of relevant by background, then obviously it would hop on that first call. And then you, you do enter that, that first call with a certain impression. And sometimes it matches, <laughs> obviously, the pitch. Sometimes it doesn't. And then it's about preparing, the, obviously, preparing the right questions. I think... Uh, depending on your, your your sort of prior knowledge, kind of obviously reading a bit into into the space, what you know what they're up to. Usually, I would do a thirty-minute call. I usually, I must admit, I don't have the founders pitch me in a classical way, go slide by slide through a pitch deck, um, simply because I, I do like to keep it a bit open. Most of the time, I would say I have a certain basic knowledge of what they're tackling, or sort of what sort of product they're you know they're looking to build which is helpful and doesn't necessarily require that classic problem, solution, why now structure. And most importantly, I think initially it's very important to understand the backgrounds of the founders, you know, how do they come to this place, where they at in their journey, talking about a bit of product and market, but I think initially much more important to really understand the founders and how they're thinking about the particular idea. Yeah, because I think you're saying... The classic pitch is not, uh, you, don't, you don't usually listen to that. Does it have to do with your specific focus on fintech and urban tech that you know this space so well that, that you need a little bit less background information? 
It certainly has something to do with that. I agree. Some founders do like or do kind of insist on a classical pitch, which is perfectly fine. But I think most founders I speak with, they like that that open kind of conversation. And I think it it comes a bit down to kind of obviously your your sort of previous experience. Uh, so and obviously again, as I mentioned, sort of your prior knowledge in that particular domain. Yeah, and, and you mentioned uh, you usually get a pitch deck first, and if you like it, you invite people for like a 30-minute call or so. What is kind of the ratio of the number of pitch decks you receive and the ones that are invited? Do a lot of people like not make it to the call? <laughs> That's a good question. Probably every, I would say maybe every 10th or so. I do get a lot of pitch decks, and I think just sometimes judging from the pitch deck, you know, this is a, this kind of this is an easy pass <laughs> obviously you have your sources which are you know are reliable and they're just going to send you kind of you know very sort of strong pitches interesting founders i guess the conversion ratio of jumping on a call is way less so what are the reasons you don't jump on a call like what are the most common reasons to say no to a pitch deck again sometimes it's just a i mean it's a horrible pitch deck very unstructured and all over the place. And I mean, and more kind of written like, I guess, like a business summary rather than a deck. And I think just judging from that, it's potentially might be, might be an indication of the founders just, you know, not really being prepared. And I think if you're an early stage founder, I mean, you should nail your pitch deck. And that's something I think you should be able to do. Just obviously talking to other founders, talking to, talking to advisors, people who have done this obviously previously, I think that just shows, I guess, just being in a sense entrepreneurial and obviously, um, you know, finding ways of getting that that pitch deck at, at least kind of done or nail that pitch deck. So, and sometimes it's just another reason would be, obviously it's a good deck or so, but it's, you know, you've seen this idea tons of times already. The market is crowded. You would know because the, the, you know, this, this, this sort of type of business models obviously been around for a while already. There's, you know, three, four other businesses being very successful. So it's just, yeah, it doesn't make sense to pursue something like that. Sometimes it's just, um, you look at the founder's background and they might not be relevant for this particular theme, just because that particular idea requires domain expertise, just because it's so specific. Uh, and none of the two, like none of the founding team would have that. Then, then it's a no-go as well. Sometimes, you know, it's a recommendation. Sometimes you get a um, an intro from a VC or founder and they say, hey, have a look at this. I talked to the founder. He's very strong. He's very insightful. Go have a chat. And obviously I will have a chat because, um, you know, have, I sort of believe in that source, I guess. <laughs> That's interesting. You mentioned sometimes the deck looks more like a business summary than a pitch deck. What would you say is the difference between the two? What do founders really need to keep in mind when making a pitch deck? I mean, I think it's important or it can be important for a founder to come up with a business summary. It's just not something you necessarily, um, you send around. Maybe that's something you share at a later point. And I think a, pitch, a business summary could be important for a founder to kind of, you know, flesh out his thoughts and put them kind of in a structured way. It's not just, it's not your classic pitch, you know, you're kind of like your 15, 20 minute pitch because a business summary is just way longer, but it's just uh, much longer, 20, 30 pages, potentially even longer. And it's more kind of a, a written out Word document uh, than 10, 15 page slide deck. Deck should be kind of a teaser and a, giving a bit of a background inf information on obviously what you, what you have in mind, your idea and the team, but not obviously a business summary. Got it. Short and sweet and not... Lots of pages on the entire business. 
yeah, lots of content on pages. So it's just it's just convoluted. And you and we spend quite a lot of time with our fellows on finding the problem, like making sure there really is a problem to solve and not just a hunch. Yeah. You see a lot of pitch deck where pitch decks where founders try to solve problems that you're like, that's not really a problem. It's already solved or it's very small. Or is that not longer a common thing? That's a possibility as well. And that again depends on my particular domain expertise in that field for me to really make a call if the product or if this idea is relevant and addresses actually a, a, like a customer problem, um, an industry problem, I need to have obviously a sufficient domain expertise. And it's similar to obviously the market might be too small for that. Again, if I do have good insights in an industry, yes, that's that's a call I would make and say that model, obviously, that's that's not relevant. I talk to customers in that particular industry. They never mentioned that or they particularly mentioned that is not actually not a problem we're having. Then that, that might be obviously a, be a kind of a pass as well as a result of that. Yeah. Um, if it's an industry I'm not 100% familiar with, then I wouldn't be in a position to make that call. Then obviously I would definitely, you know, hop, hop on a pitch on a, and, and, and simply find out and then obviously do more research in that particular industry, ask obviously people. Uh, sort of my trusted network of, of, you know, potentially experts in that space just to find out more. That's very interesting that you're mentioning. It's not just a pitch or what the founders tell me that I use to make my decisions, but also some sort of a due diligence yourself. What, what are typical steps you take to like verify what the founders have told you? Sometimes, actually, if I'm familiar with an industry, I think it's quite straightforward to get a feel if the founders are sort of, you know, telling you, I would say, or kind of more bluffing <laughs> or really telling you, you know, or being very transparent with where they at with an idea and the kind of, you know, the, and the research they have done so far might have some remarks that are off and you, you do potentially know they're simply not, you don't, they're simply not true or true or maybe, or they're simply not, you know, um, you don't agree with the remarks. Then it's, then it's pretty easy. Otherwise, I think it, it really comes down to your own research. It comes down to obviously talking to a lot of other people other potential angels, other investors, um, founders. Um, again, you know, having that, that that sort of network of yours you can tap into for particular themes and just, you know, find out if they believe in this idea, whether, you know, what kind of their opinion on a, on a particular topic. Yeah, and I guess just cross-reference um, in your network uh, with regards to a founder's kind of background and obviously um, a founder's remarks with, uh, with regards to that particular idea. And I think a lot of our founders also believe angels or other investors don't invest in a market if it's not a billion dollar opportunity. Feels like a real um, rule that has been kind of like started living its own life in, in startup world. Is there some sort of cutoff that you look at in, in terms of market sizing when you want to invest or not? Not classically. I think there definitely needs to be a potential to build a business 100 million plus. As an angel, it's a bit different. I obviously I know the classic VC uh, answer of this is not a billion dollar business. As a, definitely, as an angel, it's different simply because you, because you come in earlier most of the time. Again, other exit opportunities as an angel as well down the line. Um, so I definitely will go for business as well who are potentially not billion dollar businesses, but obviously have you know maybe let's say a few hundred million potential. I see it more from a from an annualized revenue perspective. When you know, and obviously from a kind of unit economics perspective, how big can baskets be? How big will they be initially? How can um, 
the startup obviously upsell the customer over time. So how big can baskets can be over time, let's see in three, four years. And can you really build a business, I would say, 20, 30, 40 million annualized ref? I think that's that's quite important for me to kind of, you know, keep an keep an eye on. More like revenue targets than than market size specifically. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, again, it's very hard to then obviously uh, know where kind of valuation will sit because markets go through ups, ups and downs. <laughs> so valuation multiples will change. Revenue multiples change as well, depending on the model. Is it a SaaS model? Is it a marketplace? There's, there's tons of different, obviously, uh, variations and um, multiples change as well with that. So I see it more from a kind of annualized, from a, from a basket and annualized ref point of view. Uh, your portfolio includes several unicorn companies, Revolut, which is a fintech startup, and Maven, a healthcare startup, uh, and some other companies that are on their way to become a unicorn. What are some commonalities that you have spotted between the companies that are very successful in your portfolio? Interestingly enough, successful companies in my portfolio have very different founder profiles. They're very different in terms of their backgrounds, their domain expertise, their personalities, well, some are first and the second time founders. So it's very different. I think what they have in common is they're obsessed with kind of coming up with the, the right customer proposition and, you know, really understanding a customer's problem. Initially, it's very important to ask the right questions and really, find, you know, to reach that product market fit. I think some founders actually and kind of not necessarily strong at. They pitch their idea because they're looking for some sort of feedback. And potentially looking for positive feedback because as a founder, you're always kind of been looking for somebody validating your idea and giving you kind of a, a strong indication that your idea might work because you, you 100% believe in it, which is, which is good. But you maybe then, you know, kind of forget about asking the right questions a customer or kind of what, what the customer's problem really is. And, and so I think it's very important to actually talk to as many customers as possible initially really understand the problem. Don't pitch them your idea. Understand your customer first. What is their real problem? Don't pitch them my idea and try to you know, get a positive response on, oh yeah, this idea is good. I might try it because that's not good enough. You really need to understand your customer 100%, be obsessed about building something for him that really solves a problem and solves a problem he's willing to pay for. That's, that's some of key for eventually being successful and really building a product that obviously that solves a problem and that is sticky enough so customers will keep using it or will actually or will start to use it, keep using it, and actually then you know refer it as well, um, which is very important. There's other aspects about building a business or being successful as a founder, and I, I obviously like um, I think you be, need to be very resilient. You need to know that obviously the, the the first years are going to be very very difficult. I think you're going to be um, you're going to have a lot of pushbacks. Um, so you're going to experience a lot of kind of lows and ups and go through that sort of emotional roller coaster. And I think you need to be steady, be resilient. I think believe in your idea 100%, but at the same time still keep an outsider's view and you'll know, be very open to feedback, critique, take that in, convert it, I guess, into some something positive again. I think, and then it's very important as well to, you know, again, coming back to that, that point, know your customer, being able to inspire people, you know. And I think that comes down to obviously getting the right people on board who support your vision. So selling that vision, selling that belief. So you get good people on board who help you on that journey. 
were all of those aspects things that you could see in the first interaction with these founders or are these things that you found out along the way after investing? Some you could see very early, some you can't. It's very difficult to assess initially or very early on if somebody is capable of building and managing a large organization. And that's a particular skill set as well. And then maybe it comes down to obviously the right founding team or somebody being able to obviously sell a vision early on. He might, he might be able to do that sort of eventually. But early on, it's, it's, it can be quite hard. So, but I think some traits you can see. I think some traits about being resilient, really believing in an idea, being open to feedback, being transparent. But again, obviously having, you know, having that sort of an idea, that energy that, that's kind of contagious. There's a lot of traits you can see early on in terms of somebody being a kind of a strong founder. And you probably also have companies in your portfolio that failed or at least didn't reach the status you were hoping they would reach. What are some commonalities that you spotted between those cases? I think one point is overestimating product market fit. And that comes down to what I mentioned with um, really solving a customer's problem. So it might be a problem, but the problem is simply not important enough for the customer to care or for the customer to uh, be willing to uh, pay enough for that particular problem. And that's very hard to say initially. If this is a problem that is going to be kind of really, really, really important or relevant for a customer, it might actually evolve into a relevant problem over time. That's definitely one commonality, overestimating product market fit. I think an, another one would be team setup. So the founding team in terms of not being complementary enough in terms of skill set. So maybe two founders are very strong in, in operations. For example, they can't sell. Bring in a, a strong salesperson or add to the team, no doubt about that. But obviously, there needs to be a fit in terms of skill set. There needs to be a personality fit. There's a lot of founders nowadays who um, just got to know each other recently or just been working together for, you know, I know, six months or so. We're obviously, we're not working together for four or five years. Ideal, again, coming back to that, ideally, you have two founders who've been working together for four or five years, but that's not something you always get. And personality fit could certainly be an issue down the line. And yeah, I think these are certainly um, issues I had sort of in the past with, or I've seen in the past with startups. And, and what are some of the complementary skills you think should be present in a founding team? I think you said someone needs to be able to sell it. What are other skills you think a founding team should have? That depends really on the idea you have. If it's obviously an, an AI idea or so, you definitely need somebody with obviously strong engineering tech background. Depends a bit what idea you're tackling. If it's more of a, let's say, tech light model or business model, then I think it's important, obviously, to have somebody who has a strong operations background, ideally many years of experience in, uh, in a startup, you know, scaled over time, you know, how, where's that sort of operations hat covering, you know, lots of functions across the organization. Um, ideally, you have a second founder who potentially brings along domain expertise, so he brings and um, sales experience. He has strong ties into the industry. And he usually might be kind of the more outgoing one of the two. And he's strong, obviously, with investors, um, hiring people, um, just selling that idea and positioning that idea more from, a, I guess, strategic and sales perspective as well. I mean, there could be a third, a third founder as well who obviously covers product, but and more sort of, I guess, product tech. Uh, maybe being the link to kind of the engineering team, but that, that really comes down to uh, the particular sort of business model and the, the vertical. 
So skills really need to be complementary. And I think you also mentioned there should be a fit in personality. Should that be more similar or is it okay if the personalities are, are very different as well? I've seen both <laughs> and I've seen both succeed. So um, it's hard to say, to be perfectly honest, because uh, if ideally they're different in terms of personality, I would say. Maybe somebody being a bit more analytical. I mean, ideally, obviously, founders are always analytical. <laughs> but one obviously being more of an extrovert, being kind of more going. He has more of that salesy nature. And the other one, maybe being more analytically driven. But obviously, as you know, two different personalities might clash more likely. So then ideally, you have obviously two people who are different in terms of personality, but they have worked together in the past. If they have not done so, they might obviously clash uh, more likely, if they have a clear communication, what kind of functions they cover, you know, a clear overview of uh, each other's responsibilities in order to avoid stepping on each other kind of toes in the process. I think that's a very important requirement. Just making sure, you know, everybody knows what they're responsible for and there's a clear cut division of responsibilities. I think that's, that's a good start. Sounds logical. Good communication in the founder team. Then I wanted to move to the last question, asking you if there's anything you hope our listeners take away from this interview, what would it be? Like, and most of our listeners are either pre-seed or raising a seed round, so pretty early on. What, what can they learn from what we just discussed? I mean, first, ask yourself, why do I want to be a founder slash entrepreneur? I think there needs to be the right motivation to, to found something, jumping on that journey. And that, that is potentially a very long one and a hard one. So I think it's very important to you know, ask yourself that question first. Why do I want to do this? Find yourself an idea you believe in for whatever reasons. Again, maybe due to your background. Um, obviously, you're coming from a place of pain. You experienced this before. But obviously, find an idea you, you certainly believe in. But very important, do all the research in the world you know, tap into your network, ask, you know, potential customers, all the questions you have, as many questions as you can, just to have that feedback uh, and realize if that's really a problem you came up with, or it's a problem that really exists. I think that's very important. These are two very important distinctions. And if, if, it's, a, if it's a kind of a real problem, find ideas, you know, be creative about tackling them, maybe build, you know, build first product, can just be something very simple, just a landing page. But, you know, keep iterating, keep trialing, keep going back to your potential customers, trusted partners, ask them for feedback, ask them as many questions as possible, be open. You know, I think that's so important. Go through that iterative process of adapting your model uh, due to your, you know, that feedback of your community, industry advisors, etc. And obviously, if you're just at this point, one founder, I think, it's important to find yourself a second one. <laughs> there's, there's some very strong single founder setups, but there's less and less. I think um, just because it's very hard to get on that, that, that entrepreneurial journey yourself, I think it's important you have uh, like a sparing partner, somebody who you know, um, is constructive, but gives you feedback all the time, who challenges you all the time. I think it's important to have that, that, you know, that, that second person as part of a founding team. And then obviously, it's very important to, to know and give yourself enough time to find that sort of perfect co-founder you're going on this journey, on this, this trip with. You know, allow yourself a lot of time. Uh, I think that's very important. I think many, many founders just jump into something too quickly, potentially. 
I mean, obviously they're excited. They want to get this off the ground. I get that. But potentially leave yourself a bit more time around the idea, product, product market, and obviously co-founder. I like that. I think I've heard people say the founding team is like being in a marriage together and jumping in too quick does not sound like a good idea. Yeah, totally. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast recording. Thanks so much, uh, Alex. I think this was an amazing learning opportunity for all of our listeners and our eWord fellows. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This was Leon Burma interviewing Alex Lorenz on what he looks for when investing in early stage startups. I hope you learned as much as I did today, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again in episode 14. Thanks for listening.